Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This is Carrie Peffley, and I'm in the philosophy department at Bethel, and I'm joined by Anne-Marie Koistra, and I am in the history department. And this week, our guest is Angela Sabatez, who is in the psychology department, and she is here to talk to us about Sigmund Freud and kind of his relationship to Friedrich Nietzsche and philosophy and psychology and how they connect to each other. Okay, so this week, Humanity Students and Humanities 4 are reading both Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud. And I think of Nietzsche as being sort of in the philosophy camp, whereas I think of Freud being the psychology camp. And we have with us, of course, a philosopher and a psychologist. And since we're reading Fritz first, I wonder, Carrie, if you could just remind students a little bit about what they might be reading in a genealogy of morals. And then we'll get to Angela, our psychologist. Sure. Absolutely. And I love that you call him Fritz because that's a nice shorthand way to refer to to Nietzsche. Um, So in his genealogy of morals, Nietzsche is interested in how our society got to the place where it is now um, and how the development of what we now call morality, how that came to be. Um, And so he really resituates and retells the sort of Western mythology from a perspective of power, um, that really all of human history is kind of a struggle of, of power. And in, in the beginning, there, there was just, there were people who naturally had power. And so virtue or, or what was good was just whatever was functional and whatever worked. But that meant that some people really wanted to do whatever they wanted, but they didn't have the power to do so. And so they invented this system of morality to say, well, these people who are doing what I want to do, now I get to say they're being immoral because they're doing it better than I can. And this is how morality um, comes, to, to, comes to take over the world. And that's all done through Judeo-Christian um, theism as well, which Nietzsche sees as very, very problematic and in, in sort of upholding this sort of inverse or resentiment morality that, that he ends up talking about. Wow. That's a synopsis. That's, that's an amazing synopsis. You. Yeah. And so, Angela, you are the psychologist. And so I wonder if you could um, tell our listeners a little bit about civilization and its discontents. What are some of the key things that students should be reading for um, that book and what they should be looking for in that book? Sure. Well, I think it should be noted that the connection between Nietzsche and Freud is very compelling, and especially the seeking of power. So, um, as the students may be aware, when Freud was living, he lived throughout um, the latter part of World War I and II, and he got to witness firsthand gross anti-Semitism, the, the takeover of the uh, Vienna by the Nazis, which is significant. Uh, for him, because prior to this book, he had been focusing on um, the libido, uh, the, the, the life and sexual drive of humans. After witnessing, and he had sisters who were killed by Nazis, after witnessing this treacherous um, savagery, it's the first work in which he makes very explicit his notion of aggression being equally uh, as powerful a drive as sex. And so 
I think for students, if you remember nothing else for the rest of your life about this text, may it be duly noted that Freud is not only concentrating on sex, but rather on aggression in its various forms. And so that is the key to this particular book. And of course, in keeping with Freud's theory, it's all unconscious. So we don't even know that we're doing it. We are trying to overpower one another, in fact, kill one another, and so forth in its various manifestations. And so it's in this book where he describes how that power is manifest in culture and how we shouldn't be deluded into thinking that people are really nice. Um, they are, as the infamous line from that book, man is, a, man is a wolf to man. And that about sums up his idea <laughs> of us. <laughs> Not very hopeful. Mm-hmm. So... To that point, any, anything that even looks nice is really self-serving. You, you can't, it, it's, a, um, it's a tautology. You can't, you can't reason your way out of that. It's, it's always it's circular sometimes is one of the criticisms. That what's, you know, how, when Freud is asked, how do you know that what this person is doing is savage is because it's in the unconscious? How do you know it's in the unconscious because what they're doing is savage? He just went round and round. So, mm-hmm. so that is... Go ahead. Do you have an example of um, how Freud would interpret something that appears to be nice as actually maybe being an example of savagery or the will to aggression? Absolutely. In fact, he makes note of that in Civilization is Discontents, excuse me, when he refers to the, the Christian mandate to love, to love one another. Um, he really fundamentally says it's not that really we want to love one another. It's that we want to preserve the species. So all of these kind gestures are really repressions of an aggressive drive. So, so I often caution the students, be careful of those who claim to be good friends or loyal and trustworthy because they will do it only insofar as it, it serves them. And so the surgeon who cuts people for a living is really working out his or her savage um, instinct, but in a socially, um, a socially approved way. And this is the, the term that he uses a lot in that book is called sublimation, where we sublimate or make, uh, you know, make, turn something that's unsavory into um, a, a more socially or civilized way of being. And so you have surgeons, you have people, uh, artists who, who paint nudes, or even the football players who keep slapping each other in the behind when they get, <laughs> when they get a touchdown. Um, the examples are endless that, that we've taken, we've sublimated these drives. And hence the name of the text, because what he argued is we never actually get rid of that primal instinct in us. And so it causes discontent in us. So you can pick anything nice that you wish and he would interpret it for you as savage. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's that's an interesting another interesting connection between Nietzsche and Freud, not just the power and sort of aggression, but that the idea that humans are far less rational and kind than we think we are. Um, that we we rationalize, but we're actually not driven by very many rational impulses, or at least there are other much stronger impulses driving us. And I think what you just said is a really important point because often what I say to students is, is all you have to do is hear the word Freud and automatically you draw 
if you draw upon schemas that you have, reputation, and so forth. And there is a tendency to dismiss him offhand. I've had students do that, I think, in 100% of the times when I've introduced him, people will roll their eyes. And then I ask them, how many of you read them? And nobody's read them. <laughs> I can say in humanities, now you can say you have read Freud. But what's important to keep in mind is that contemporary research bears out some of the things he said. So to your point, Carrie, about us being much more irrational than we would like for us to be, there's ample evidence, at least in psychology, in, in neuroscience, that humans aren't driven just by these perfectly rational uh, forces, actually. And furthermore, that we have multiple levels of conscious awareness. I mean, that's, that's at this point, indisputable. Mm-hmm neuroscience perspective and it's how Freud we have to keep in mind that he was writing before all the fanciful neurological instruments Uh, but he was surmising what he saw and he was actually correct I mean people he was correct insofar as we have multiple levels of conscious awareness and some of those things that are in us are quite primal and quite not nice and we we carry that as part of our human condition so Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that has a deep effect on our ethics. So to connect, again, these two, I think, I mean, I think philosophy and psychology departments should be joined because I yes. think they're really asking so many of the same questions. But if you start thinking then about ethics and what is virtue and how, well, if we can't actually behave well or we're not as in control of our behavior as we think we are, what does that do for our ethical system? So I don't know if you've heard, Angela, I'm sure you've heard of this. There's some sort of psychological study about um, people who um, are more likely to give to charity if they've just like walked by a shop with fresh bread smells coming out of it. (laughs) So I mean, these sorts of experiments that show, you know, people are much more ethical and kind because they are feeling happy about the smell of fresh bread. Mm-hmm. That's very random. Right. But I also think one of the problems with Freud is he, there's no winning, right? I, you just can't ever rationalize goodness of any form, however imperfect, right? But what I think is an interesting challenge is if you look at recent research, if, for example, to, uh, using the example of wanting to help uh, support an organization that helps those in poverty. Uh, what, what researchers have found is that the, the initial instinct is to help. And if you give people time to rationalize, they, they're less and less likely to help. So imagine seeing a commercial with a starving child. The initial impulse is, oh my gosh, what can I do? And if you let the rational brain take over long enough, you talk yourself out of helping the, the, the homeless person you see on the street or whatever else. So Freud doesn't, there does appear to be some evidence that there's also part of what's primal in us is also to help the other. Mm-hmm. So Which is interesting and hopeful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because I think it's a little bit fatalistic for Freud to say, look, you're pretty savage. You don't find a profession that lets you act out your savagery, you have no hope except to be savage because, you know, something has to restrain you. Well, okay. I mean, this is why we have laws and rules and ethical guidelines to the various professions because we falter. But I think you could use it as a kind of an easy out. Like, that's just, you know, I'm human. 
I just loved you because I was angry. And, you know, that's just so human and primal of me. And Freud said, you know, I mean, there's a way to talk yourself. So, you know, we do have also highly developed brains that help us uh, to make decisions, to restrain impulses and so forth. So it's, it's more holistic, I think, than Freud first proposed. But then again, he didn't have the advantage of neuroscience like we do now to, to observe these things. So, Well, I have a slightly different question, which is, you are, I think, unique, Angela, in that you are a psychologist on a humanities team. And Freud is unique because it's a psychology text and otherwise a humanities program. And I wonder what you think about being a psychologist teaching humanities or even the value of a psychology text like this one of Freud's. Like what what place do you see it having in a humanities course? Well, I think it's important for students to understand that there's a bit of artificial fragmenting of disciplines. And uh, I, I am in, in absolute agreement with Carrie that philosophy and psychology are, are, are partners in ever. And so I frequently tell my advisees, take philosophy, learn some basic philosophy, some learn something about philosophy. And um, when I teach the history of psychology, I'm very well aware that the questions that we ask are age old. And, and what is humorous to me, and if there are any psychology students listening to this, um, you may be amused to think that psychologists often act as though we just came up with this. Look at this idea about will or about evil. Oh, aren't we cool? <laughs> you know, just a number of years ago, it was determined by the positive psychology movement that having too much of virtue is really not a good thing. So I'm immediately thinking of Aristotle. No one cites Aristotle in these academic writings. And I want to say, if we studied together better, we could save a lot of time. I'm not suggesting that philosophy as a discipline in psychology are exactly the same, because to the extent that psychology uses, it depends on the branch of philosophy, a more strictly empirical way in the lab of of learning things. But I think, so so I I fought to have Freud read in humanities because I thought he has so influenced our civilization. And there was even some kickback about that, like, oh, I don't know. And I just kept at it and at it until finally it was accepted. I think that my discipline does not appreciate enough its historical roots in philosophy, in literature, Mm -hmm. in theater, even in history. Um, And so I'm delighted for students to see, and I often make a joke about like, I'm the only psychologist here, and I ask for majors to raise their hands to say, here we are. (laughs) Uh, Because I don't see the conflict. Uh, I I think this is another way of thinking about the human condition. Mm -hmm. And it's what we're exploring in humanities, right? So... Well, and I think, too, very early into the book, Freud is trying to explain why he isn't somebody who is a fan of the traditional Judeo-Christian view of the human condition. And so there is that famous quotation about the oceanic feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really helpful for our students who are often coming from a religious background to be able to have a moment, whether it's through Freud or through Nietzsche, 
to sort of go, well, you know, what does it look like from a different perspective and what merit or lack of merit do these um, perspectives have? Absolutely. And I tell the students, it's very uncomfortable to study Freud because we come face to face with the brokenness of the human condition. And, and I say what he does very well is to show us just how broken we are. But what he doesn't do so well is, again, as I said earlier, is to make some allowance. So, so it's interesting because the Judeo-Christian approach can hold that tension better than some other thinkers can, to acknowledge both that kind of savagery as well as some, some image of God in us retained, however marred it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that's very interesting to think about both Nietzsche and Freud, that in some ways they help give they can help give Christians arguments um, to, to help see why, where our problems are, how flawed we ultimately are. I mean, Nietzsche and Freud have a view of humanity as, as deeply aggressive and, and, and our, what we do to each other is very distressing. And that fits with, you know, in some ways with, say, Augustine and a concept of original sin. And so there are ways in which these having these two thinkers who aren't Christian or who are highly critical of the Christian tradition speak into our own views such that we can see the areas of our own thought that we've been blind to um, and can actually learn from. I know that Eric Leaflet last week um, on our podcast mentioned that Marx in many ways made him a better Christian. I hope that Freud and Nietzsche can do that as well. <laughs> That's right. And, and to make the connection with Augustine, I mean, in his confessions, remember he talks about, oh, I, the woeful soul, and so, but you, Lord, and, and he acknowledges the grace of God to work in our humanity. So, mm-hmm. interesting. Well, and I think what I, was, what I was going to say too is, I think there's a way in which when students think about sin, you can compartmentalize in a way that you can't compartmentalize in the same way when you're dealing with how Nietzsche and Freud think about our basic instincts. In some ways, I don't know, I feel like that makes you think about things a little differently. Like you can't, like like sin is something you always want to, you know, not do. But I think what Freud and to some degree Nietzsche do is they say, no, that's also sewn into our fabric in a way too. And I think, I think that's, I think that's good to be confronted with it on that level. It's harder to compartmentalize. Recently I was reading uh, the imitation of Christ by campus and in there, there are all these warnings about just when you think you're doing really well and you compare yourself to someone else, compare yourself to the Lord, (laughs) bring it back to realize how depraved you really are. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's compelling and humbling. So Right. It keeps us ever before us. Right? Mm-hmm. So and humility, too. Yeah. So, so, Angela, how much do you guys in the psychology still use Freud? How relevant is Freud still? Well, there is an entire, entire school of thought still lingering that is very, that, that, that uses the ideas of Freud, and they've been amended with time but there's an entire psychoanalytic branch to our field in the clinical world, mostly, um, not mostly in research circles. So our department is less likely to have a focus on Freud because we do a lot more empirical research of different sorts. 
but we shouldn't underestimate. I mean, there are pockets of Freudians all over the nation. For some reason, unbeknownst to me, the Northeast is huge. New York is like a mecca for psychoanalytic thinking. And, and you know, Freud had many Jewish followers um, in comparison to Christians who thought because he was so anti the church, calling Christianity one of the arch enemies of science. I think the church broke away from him or holds him as, as, you know, as a kind of suspiciously, but there are pockets everywhere. Every, um, so often I attend an organization uh, and a professional meeting where there's an entire branch of psychoanalytic theorists who meet together. You always wonder, what are they talking about in these hidden rooms? <laughs> very, oh my goodness, very Freudian. And I had some Freudian supervisors when I was in graduate school. So it's not predominant voice, but it's very strong. Interesting. Well, so here's another thing, too, that I'm thinking of as um, from the perspective of history. I feel like I heard, and maybe, you, Angela, you can be like, no, that's totally ridiculous. But in World War I, Freud, Freud's theories also led to sort of more humane treatments for mental illness, right? Isn't he sort of the pioneer of the talking cure and that kind of a thing? Uh, well, there were others, Pinnell and others who really, um, uh, how shall I say, uh, humanized the treatment. Remember, just, to, and, and still in, in Freud's lifetime, people were, uh, the wealthy were going to the to what were then called the insane asylums, as though they were zoos, right? To, they, they would pay admission fees to watch people who were shackled and so forth. So there is a sense, I mean, I think it might be a little bit of a stretch to say that Freud was, was primary in this movement because he saw mostly wealthy Viennese women. Wasn't doing necessarily advocacy at the grassroots level. Um, but he did, and in fact, he called women hysterical and so forth. So we have him to thank for much of those, those, those impressions. Um, so, I'm, you know, I, yes, insofar as that he counseled people and didn't mock them and treated them humanely, but I'm not so sure broadly. Mm-hmm. I have a question related to that. So I have a sister who was a history major and is now a social worker, Um, And so she's gotten into more of the clinical side of things. And she is incredibly hostile toward Freud for the way that he talked about PTSD and sort of had been doing this research that seemed to indicate that some of the things that he just called hysteria actually came from deeply traumatic experiences. But he just sort of brushed that aside and sort of set psychological research in terms of PTSD back by quite a bit by not realizing how much that sort of trauma was not just related to say soldiers or things like that, but um, to, to women who had been abused or people who had been oppressed. Would you say that, is that true? Well, first of all, there wasn't a PTSD research like we know now at the time. The term didn't come out until much later. Um, And I think, but yes, it is true that, well, I think that's a mixed bag because Freud believed people could talk their way through and he could analyze their way through trauma. Um, he, but he made a lot of claims like, for example, let's say a woman who was molested by her father, that she might have actually unconsciously wanted her father as in the edible complex and the electro complex in this case. Right. 
wanted her father somehow in some way that was unknown to her, that could do so much damage. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I'm not, so, you know, I'd have to read a little bit more about that, but I'm not so sure that he, we have to understand him historically too. Where was he at the time? Um, I mean, the, the, the notion of shell shock, which came after World War One, it was just nascent then. I mean, it was, it was so, so new. You know, it's not like, oh, people have been writing about PTSD and then Freud came in and said, okay, you're all wrong. <laughs> right. right. So elementary, his thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was curious to me how he would respond now in the light of research. What would he say to those findings? So. Yeah. And I guess that is good advice to probably all of our students as they're reading Nietzsche and Freud to also re- like to treat them as people who were also historical figures and mm-hmm. are not, are not, um, they don't have the same advantages we do of looking back and seeing the development of psychological or ethical or philological um, development since then. That's right. And I say to my students, if I had been living in Freud's era as a Jew in Vienna and watching the overtaking of my city and the brutality, I too would have come to this conclusion that people are fundamentally savage. I mean, how hard would it have been to come to another conclusion witnessing yeah. firsthand? Yeah, and it does it does provide an answer, right? Like the, the problem of evil is solved if you go along with Freud's, you know, theory that that's just an innate characteristic of humankind. Now, where it comes from and and how God coexists, I mean, but Freud wrote God off. So that, again, I mean, it does solve some of those, not satisfactorily maybe, but it does solve those questions. Yeah, it provides, it provides answers um, and a good, like at least a plausible explanation for something like, you know, the Holocaust, World War II, mm-hmm. World War One. Yeah, it does, although I wouldn't find it reassuring. Like as a Jew no. living at the time, <laughs> Freud said, to be expected. You can expect more slaughtering because um, this is the way we are. I would be like, okay, thank you for the answer, but wow. Yeah. No, that's, that's not a good way to live. Not, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. Um, but yeah, and I will also just go back to Carrie's comment too. Even though these authors that we've been reading are products of their time, there has been kind of a consistent theme of kind of the the dark side with regard to gender. I mean, that has been kind of a consistent Boy, boy, howdy, blind spot for, for many, many of the, the folks that were reading, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So. Right, and how ironic that here Freud is saying, oh, look at you all so savage, and yet he, he takes quite a, I dare say, kind of savage view of women and telling us all that we have penis envy and what we really want is to be men. It's Talk about using power and, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. Which is what we're seeing, you know, this week we've just finished talking about Marx, Pope Leo, and Walter Rauschenbusch, um, and that sort of the power dynamic against women, even when they see that, even if they maybe agree that capitalism has problems, it's that it treats women potentially like they have more power than they should, or more autonomy than they should, and it's still upholding kind of the status quo in this icky way. Indeed. So Angela, you have been um, kind of on forced, I don't know, home base for this semester because of, a, of an injury that you suffered. 
Um, and one of the things we always ask our guests to talk about is um, what's on your nightstand. And you might have like three or four things on your nightstand because you've just had, you know, had to be at home. Right. Um, first, let me do, let me confess that I have been entirely too much on social media. <laughs> I was recovering. But aside, um, I've what actually watched with social media. Did you did you have a, a fun show that you were watching? Well, okay, depends if we're talking about Netflix or other forms of social media. And um, I love British crime shows, so those are among my all-time favorites. And I've just discovered another one called Keep Being Faith, which is quite interesting. Mm. Mostly they're very suspenseful rather than blood and guts, which is why I appreciate them and the acting is really good. It rests on the acting. So those have been really cool. Although I don't, I don't suppose you should watch too many crime shows in a row. But that does something to your <laughs> way of thinking. Uh, but I actually, um, we're obviously having this interview um, in the fall after a rather tumultuous time with regard to racism in our nation. And so I've been doing a lot of reading and actually rereading um, Maya Angelou's work, which I love her poetry. Most recently I reread I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and I've been deeply affected. And these are the kinds of readings that I read them and then I have to absorb again because each time I read them I'm in a different place in life and I can appreciate something more. So I have um, been reading a lot about that, read White Fragility, many, many things. I'm still here. All of these things I read over the course of the last few months and that's been my focus for right now. Sobering work, uh, because I think if we took to heart what Freud said, that there is that part in us, well, racism is surely one of its forms. So, um, so I've been, those are the things I've been focusing on right now. Sure. Uh, Carrie, what, what's on your nightstand? Well, I'm working through um, white fragility as well. Um, and it's, yeah, connecting well with a lot of, a lot of different things that I've been thinking about and working on this fall. Um, and then, as I've said repeatedly, continuing to slog my way through James Joyce's Ulysses, because it seems appropriate in a pandemic with more time. Um, it's one of my, actually, my current pile on my nightstand just keeps getting taller as I keep not finishing books, but adding to my pile of what I want to read. <laughs> Oh, uh, and what about you, Anne Marie? Well, did you finish the um, hiking with Nietzsche book? I did. So I have I have removed one from my pile, and that's great. And it's you know I partially started reading it because I want to be outside more because of the pandemic, um, and then partially because I was preparing to give a lecture on Nietzsche this this fall, and so it's connected nicely. Actually, those two ideas. Um, Nietzsche's philosophy with being outdoors and what nature can do for us and for our philosophy. Um, I would highly recommend it. It's a, okay. it's a very easy, easy read and it's not dense philosophy. It's written by a philosophy professor, but it's really, really a nice way to get into Nietzsche's philosophy. I can, I think Angela's putting that on her list right now, her reading list, Hiking mm -hmm. with Nietzsche. It's very good. Very nice. And I am still reading through endo silence i am finding that a very slow read and that doesn't mean it's a bad read it's just a very slow read because he really keeps coming back to 
I, I, in some ways, the problem of evil, because evil is smacking him on the face, and he is trying to figure out how to make sense of, in the face of so much evil, not just does God exist, because I think that's never in question, but what do you do with God's silence when there is so much evil? Why doesn't God provide any sort of comment in some way, right? And so I think, and it kind of reminded me of, a, of something I heard about Mother Teresa, where, she's, where there was apparently like, she felt like she had more contact with God early in her life. And then for many years, there was silence. And I think, and you know, that the fact that people can continue to be devout in the face of silence, that is faith, I guess. So um, <laughs> I'm saying more about that book than I meant to, but um, I'm, I'm finding it very interesting. But then I should also mention that my 10-year-old daughter read a book by Rebecca Stead or Steed. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. It's a book called When You Reach Me. And she wasn't sure what that book was entirely about. So now I'm reading it. And it's very interesting. And if you're looking for something for sort of the 10 to 12-year-old crowd, it's set in the 1970s. And that resonates with me as somebody who grew up in the 70s. And the mom is about to go on uh, the Great Pyramid Game Show. So there's some, some fun elements, even though there is definitely some mystery built into it too. So cool. interesting. There you go. Lots of varied reading from the deep yes. and heavy to the lighter. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, well, it's been a f- uh, several minutes, and we should probably say that you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Mm-hmm.